I want you guys to give me examples of things that Catholics and Protestants have in common and things that they don't have in common. Let's start with similarities. Aaron, why don't you get the ball rolling? Okay. So we both, right? So, so we all. Oh, I'm actually drawing a blank here, to be honest. Not to worry. Someone else. A similarity. Yes. Protestants are British and Catholics are Irish. So that's actually a difference. Quite a. Quite a big difference. If that's okay, we can write that down. Now, back to similarities. Yes. Uh, Protestants are richer. Okay, so that's another difference. And I'm not sure that's actually... I mean, is that true? I would say so. Mm, yeah, I suppose that's fair enough. Yes, great. Off you go. Catholics really buzz off statues and we don't so much. I do enjoy a good statue, it has to be said. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 123, Operation Banner. This is our third episode about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. If you haven't caught the previous episodes, we encourage you to give them a listen for important context about the events discussed in today's episode. Okay, Race, getting to know you question today is, is there a hobby or pastime that you are simply not interested in? So in Arizona, and this I have noticed this in a lot of other Western states as well, there's like a prominent lake culture, like the idea of going to the lake as a pastime. So like in Nevada, you have Lake Mead. In Utah and Arizona, you have Lake Powell. And then there's other several other lakes here in Arizona. People really like to go. They take their boats. They make like a long weekend out of it, maybe jet skis. Um, because unlike, you know, Tyler, you in Los Angeles, we can't really get to the beach. <laughs> the only water we have available to us is like the various lakes. Um, I've been, I, I am friends with some lake people and I've been before. And it's pretty fun. But I could never see myself like it was pretty fun to go once, mm. but I could never see myself getting into that. It seems like so if you lived really close to the lake or like at the lake, I would be like, maybe I should get a boat if I have a lot of money. Yeah. But I would never be the because you have to have like a boat and then you have to have a trailer to pull the boat. <laughs> and then you have to have a like dock. a yeah. vehicle big enough to haul the boat. And um, my thesis advisor in school said one of the wisest thing he ever of many wise things he said to me is, don't be the guy who has a boat, be the guy who's friends with a guy who has a boat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is pretty good advice. And um, anyway, it's at least in Arizona, at least where I live, the people who go to the effort to go to the lake, I think they have a great time. But I'm just it's it's not it's not for me too, uh, too far, too hot. I'd rather do something else. That makes sense to me. I get that. Yeah. Um, my answer is also something that a lot of people do in my town. Uh, and it's also something a lot of people do at my job. I think my answer has to be going to music festivals. Oh, yeah. Uh, everyone does that here. Coachella is the big one out in uh, like Palm Springs. And... It's just the opposite of what I want to be doing <laughs> because uh, I don't really like crowds. I don't like being out in the sun, like exposed forever. 
Sure. Uh, but I also am kind of particular about live music and I don't really enjoy it if it's like poor sound quality. Right. Uh, not that the sound is going to be like horrendous at a music festival. It's just not going to sound like that good. <laughs> I think it's probably also hard to hear depending on where you get to stand. Totally. Uh, you have to drive forever to get there in mounds of traffic, be in a crowd of way too many people. There's no bathrooms. I say, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I wonder if anybody is surprised that the two guys who have a Wikipedia-based podcast are like, I'll stay home this weekend, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do we give off that energy? I, oh, I, I oh that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. But I'm, I feel the exact same way. It's like, it's just too much of a, of a to-do. Like, it'd probably be fun if I got there, I guess, for a while, but I'm just going to stay home. <laughs> Definitely. And it's so expensive. It's exactly, just like yeah. a lot of effort, high cost. Totally. Um, fun fact to finish the sketch knowing question. Did you know that there is only one naturally occurring lake in Arizona and that every other one is man-made? I was going to say, what is the lake? Is it Lake Havasu? Uh, no, Lake, La- lake Havasu is a dammed river. Um, okay. Like almost all of them... Um, Oh, sorry. It has two natural natural lakes. They're both very small, and they're up in the mountains near like Flagstaff and Sedona. Oh. Um, but all the rest of them are we've dammed the Colorado River or the Salt River or whatever to make like every other lake in Arizona. I think even people in Arizona don't really wouldn't even know that there's oh. Mormon Lake and Flagstaff and Stoneman Lake in Sedona are natural lakes. They're very very small. Oh. All the rest of them man-made. Well, Tyler, here we are at episode three of our series about the troubles. And I feel like I might need to apologize a little bit to our beloved audience because we built this as a series about the troubles that like the title literally is the troubles. Uh, maybe we should have titled it the road to the troubles because <laughs> um, we've discussed so much background and build up. And this is really the only episode that we're going to discuss, like the troubles themselves from like the 60s to the 90s. Um, they only get this one episode. But that also feels appropriate because to understand like the history and the background and context of the Troubles is to understand the Troubles. As Wikipedia puts it, the Troubles were uh, a conflict that was primarily political and nationalistic fueled by historical events. And I couldn't agree more. I'm guessing Mm. you've kind of gotten the same sense as we've talked about this. Like you can't understand this without going hundreds of years back as we have done which has been a good time very much so yeah and i'm glad we've spent these few weeks digesting some of those historical events and hopefully that will kind of illuminate this episode Um, and as i said at the beginning of all this a lot of this was has been kind of my personal desire to just understand the troubles it's got a catchy name and i've heard about it my whole life and it's like i should understand what that is and so these few weeks have been nice for me to be able to like once now that we're into this episode it's like i kind of think i know what all the pieces of this are. And so it's been nice. Um, I would also argue that the historical events um, didn't create like the troubles. So like understanding, you know, the plantation system and the Irish war of independence and the Irish civil war and the border campaign and all that stuff. That's not like necessary to understanding the troubles. Um, Those weren't, those aren't the component parts of this new conflict called the troubles. I would say that, 
it's really kind of the same conflict just stretched out over decades, if not mm. centuries. Like this has all kind of been one big, long continuation of the same idea, which has been um, been super interesting. And I'm glad we've gone through it. Um, but to jump into our discussion of the, um, the Troubles proper, I wanted to kind of review and set the stage for who the players are. So we're fast forwarding a little bit. We kind of left off and um, the bulk of our last discussion was like in the 20s. We did fast forward a little bit to the 50s and 60s. Um, but we're now going to be firmly in the 60s, 70s, 80s um, and 90s. And so now that we're in kind of the second half of the 20th century, you know, who exactly is left on the stage or, or what have the groups become? And I would say that these are the main kind of groups we're thinking about. The first is the British Army. Um, the British Army deployed as something, a part of an operation which they named Operation Banner. Um, this operation spanned from 1969 to 2007. And that is the longest continual military deployment in British history which is fascinating, longer than any yeah. of the other kind of myriad conflicts that the British military has been involved in. Um, and so the British army is going to be a significant force in this story. Of course, Northern Ireland, the little corner of Ireland that's been carved out and is kind of has um, remained loyal to the United Kingdom. Um, for that reason, the United Kingdom can send its soldiers there as a form of um, protection or support. Um, and officially, the British military was in Northern Ireland to support um, Northern Irish authorities there. And they had a three kind of three part support mission. Um, and the way they described it was the first prong was routine support. And this was like, we're going to provide protection to the police. You know, the Northern Irish police are trying to keep the peace from the, those rascals in the south causing problems. So we're going to protect them, make sure that they've got protection and, you know, the resources that they need. Um, particularly in areas where there's a terrorist threat. We're going to patrol around important places like military and police bases um, to keep, you know, keep violence down what, and whatnot. Then there's something called additional support. This is um, where the police have insufficient assets of their own or they have asked for like special additional support. We offer additional support, the British Army is saying, um, such as observation posts, um, if there's a particular time of civil disorder, like a, a particularly violent kind of spate, we go in then. Um, they might put in police lines, um, cordons, you know, checkpoints, that kind of thing. Um, they can put in barricades, take down barricades, send in armored vehicles or helicopters if things get really hairy. And then the final um, element of British um, operation there was specialist support and that's really where kind of military specialists would get involved for instance if there was a bomb threat and you needed like a bomb sniffing dog and a bomb disposal unit and you know hurt locker type stuff um well uh, northern irish police probably don't have that but we can send in specialists from our military um divers tracking dogs that kind of stuff so the british army saw itself um in kind of a particular support role um, to the Northern Irish. This is a full-scale military uh, mobilization. Over 20,000 troops at a time were being sent to Northern Ireland. So meaning the population of Northern Ireland in like 19, in the 70s when it was at its peak, um, tw over 20,000 people living within its borders would say, I'm a British soldier who's been sent here to keep the peace. 
Um, that's a lot of a, a large military mobilization. And just to kind of um, get the image that we should all get the image in our heads. It's hard to overstate the symbolic resonance of English soldiers riding into town, waving the Union Jack on military, you know, vehicles in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, even the Northern Irish people viewed themselves as separate from the British. Like by definition, there's a reason, <laughs> you know, we're, we're the Northern Irish. We're kind of our own thing, even though they have a complicated relationship with the British. But they are Irish after all. Um, and so even that relationship was a little bit complicated. Um, and then there's the Republican view or the Southern Irish view of these British soldiers with their flags sipping their tea, which to state the obvious was extremely negative, right? They were, they were seen as foreign colonizing, abusive interlopers who are encroaching on the one on the Island of Ireland, which by the way, in case any of you up North have forgotten, it's one Island and it's one country guys, no matter what you say about your ownership of Northern Ireland, it actually all belongs to us. So get the heck out of here, right? Um, be gone with you. Um, the British army was there supporting the second group that I'll highlight, which is the RUC. Um, for a long time, Ireland had a police force called the Royal Irish Con- um, Constabulatory, Constabulary, sorry, um, the RIC. Those constables were kind of half cops, half soldiers. Um, which makes sense considering the times we're discussing, like from the 1820s to 1920s. Those were very turbulent times, as we discussed in our last episode. So they were like kind of really a really intense police force to keep the peace. Um, That was the Royal Irish um, Constabulary. But something happened in 1922 that disrupted the idea of an entire island police department, which Tyler, pop quiz, what happened in 1992 (laughs) or 1922, sorry. 1922, was that the partition? That was the partition, yeah. Okay. So we go from the Royal Irish Constabulary to becoming the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Mm, um, we, we, we drew a line and it was like, okay, we're not the Irish Constabulary anymore. We're the Royal Ulster Constabulary, um, R-U-C. So this is just basically the cops in the Eng- on the English side of the line. Um, but these guys weren't normal cops. They rolled heavy. They, if you saw them, they would look more like soldiers. They were carrying, um, like assault rifles, think more, you know, um, D-Day paratrooper rather than like Andy Griffith with his revolver. Right. Um, and again, that makes sense considering the context. Um, if you look at photos and art and stuff depicting the troubles, um, you'll often see, Lots of acronyms. There's the IRA, there's the RUC, there's all sorts of things. But the RUC, uh, I feel like pops up in a lot of um, a lot of graffiti. I believe in the Cranberries music video for Zombie, there's a Mm -hmm. sign about the RUC. Um, But it's basically just the cops. It's the Northern Irish cops who are really more kind of like soldiers, as I said. And they were seen as enforcing British rule over the island. And thus they were particularly disliked by the IRA and people of kind of that persuasion who didn't accept Northern Ireland. It was kind of a a double whammy. Not only are you furthering British rule here, just like the British soldiers, but it hurts worse because you are Irish like us. You're Mm. not, you know, you're not, you're not over here with your silly British accent. Like you sound like us, you should be with us. You know, one eye, one Island, one Ireland, what are you even doing? And so um, if, if possible to be even more disliked than the British army, um, maybe they were um, the RUC, maybe they were. There's also paramilitaries on both sides, and that includes um, what we'll just kind of 
gloss in a you know in a travesty of history i'll i'm just going to call ulster paramilitaries so these are loyalist paramilitaries um ideologically at least on paper in general aligned with the british army meaning we want to stay part of the uk we don't like those you know devious catholics in the south um but they're obviously unofficial because they're paramilitaries so kind of armed civilians doing their own thing and um, there's lots of conflict among and between all of these groups um, but there were Ulster paramilitaries who will become important um, in this story. Now, in the South, it's really interesting because there is like official I Southern Ireland, so the Republic of Ireland, there is like an official army and military police um, authorities. But the bulk of the story, kind of the spotlight and the headlines go to the paramilitaries um, in the South. Um, call, you know, the British would call them the terrorist paramilitaries in the South. There are some Irish security forces, but really we're talking about um, the paramilitaries in the South, which is really interesting. It's one of the things about this quote unquote war that is weird and lopsided in that it wasn't the Irish military versus the British military really at all. Um, and while there were other um, Republican paramilitary groups and the rise and fall of those groups and the fighting between them and the different schisms and splinter groups is super interesting. And I encourage everybody to go read about it. But the most successful, like the dominant faction coming out of the South of all the Republican groups was the IRA. And if you knew, like me, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, before we really dove into this stuff, if you'd asked me about the Troubles, I would have known Northern Ireland, the Cranberries, and some, and some group called the IRA, which I think did some car bombs. <laughs> <laughs> like that was one of the things I knew about this conflict was this um, this acronym IRA Irish Republican Army. Um, there were various schisms of the Irish Republican Army. The group that we often just colloquially colloquially gets called the IRA was actually the one of the splinter groups called the Provisional IRA. Mm -hmm. And on the ground in Ireland at the time, the people on the street often um, would have called them the Provos because of the Provisional part. So. Um, the um, the Provo fighters, they saw themselves as the true heirs of the IRA that Tyler, you explained to us during the Irish War of Independence. Um, although those are technically two separate groups because nothing mm -hmm. in the Troubles can be too straightforward. Those are not the same IRA group, <laughs> um, but they existed decades apart. But their mission was essentially the same. You know, we got to keep those British bastards from stealing that chunk in the north like they want to do. Um, British get out of here. So same very basic, you know, <laughs> heavily glossed um, ideas going on there. Um, I think the last group, so we've got British officials in the British official forces with soldiers in the north and paramilitaries. Really, the star of the show in the south is the paramilitaries um, with the IRA. But I think the last group that um, definitely shouldn't be overlooked are the civilians <laughs> that are um, existing in and around and between these groups. Um, and of course, we often talk about this in terms of Catholics and Protestants. And um, it's really tempting to just think about it that simply. This is a North v. South, British v. Irish, Catholics v. Protestants problem. Um, and that honestly is fair enough on a certain level. Um, we're here over there. There's them over there. It's two groups. But this is um, one of the reasons the troubles get so complicated is because this really isn't like as straightforward even mm -hmm. as I mean, I'm about to call like 
the Israel-Palestine conflict straightforward. <laughs> but what I was going to say was it's not even as straightforward as like the Israelis live here and the Palestinians live here. Um, as I understand it, and maybe we need to do a whole series on that conflict so I can understand it better. But like that division was a lot more is a lot more stark than what we've got going on here, because Catholic Southern e- England had a significant Protestant minority. And in particular, Protestant Northern Ireland had a big Catholic mi- um, minority mm-hmm. as well. So the the line is. Uh, it's a it's a bright line between the two places, but as far as demographics and people, uh, not nearly as clean as as you know it's one wants to kind of imagine it. So it it's it gets complicated. Um, I will particularly shout out because we're going to get to this as we go on, but I'll particularly shout out the city of Derry or London Derry, depending on <laughs> who you want to get punched in the mouth by. <laughs> Um, there are other places and Tyler, you talked about this in our last episode. There's like these border counties that kind of, Mm. you know, it, it just gets very complicated, but Derry is a great example of a place where yes, we're technically in Northern Ireland when we're talking about Derry, but there are a lot of Catholics there. And so it's not surprising that this is, these are often the areas where the conflict begins. You know, we're in a Protestant city, but there's a huge Catholic neighborhood. Well, that's where sparks are probably going to fly. And Catholics, just for instance, talking about Derry, they were discriminated against under the unionist government in Northern Ireland in a political sense. They were discriminated against economically. Um, In the show Derry Girls, they point out like the the girls have a run in with the police and they just know immediately all of these cops are Protestants Mm. and they even call them out on that. They're like, yeah, how many Catholic officers do you have in your in your department? You know, so there was. Um, sharp, sharp divides, but minorities on both sides. Um, and so it got very um, complicated. And the last thing that I'll say about civilians, the um, one of many reasons they deserve kind of special consideration in this conflict, 52% of the people killed in the decades of the Troubles were civilians. So more than half of the people who died um, were not in uniforms, were not carrying guns, they were just the people who were in the way, were seen as, you know, the enemy for whatever reason. And so we've got lots of armed groups and unfortunately, um, civilians, men, women and children um, caught in the crossfire. So now we come to the official beginning of the Troubles. And if you would ask Wikipedia, what are the official beginning of the Troubles, then I would hope at this point in the series, you will not be surprised to hear that no one knows and no one can agree (laughs) about it. (laughs) Um, But Wikipedia offers four suggestions for what is typically viewed as the start of the Troubles. So I think by talking about each of these four uh, moments in Irish history, then we're not going to necessarily choose the beginning of the Troubles, but we will get a better sense of the story of what is happening exactly in 1966. So the first thing that Wikipedia mentions is the formation of the UVF. On March 8th in 1966, there were parades throughout Ireland that were marking the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, which we actually outlined in the last episode. You'll remember that rebellion. And in Dublin on the very same day, 
Irish Republicans decided that they had had enough of a very annoying monument that was in the city. It was called Nelson's Pillar, and it was a granite column, 134 feet tall. And on the very top, there was a statue of Horatio Nelson. Now, the statue is in Dublin, Ireland, but Horatio Nelson was a British flag officer from the Royal Navy who had fought during the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. And even when the statue was made 200 years prior in the 1800s, Irish Irish commentators opposed it at the time. And one actually wrote, our independence has been wrested from us, not by the arms of France, but by the gold of England. The statue of Nelson records the glory of a mistress and the transformation of our Senate into a discount office. So this was, I think, kind of a thing to look up in the skyline of Dublin and you see this annoying British statue. (laughs) (laughs) The British have this very powerful Navy. And by 1966, they decided it was time for the statue to go. And Irish Republicans dynamited the base of the monument and it crashed to the ground in ruins. Now, the IRA at the time was pretty weak, and it was not engaged in military action. But after this explosion of the statue, unionists believed that the IRA was about to be revived. They saw this as kind of a portent. And at the same time, a loyalist group that called itself the UVF, or Ulster Volunteer Force, emerged in Belfast, Northern Ireland. The UVF petrol bombed a number of Catholic homes, schools, and businesses. They, quote, declared war against the IRA and anyone helping it. And their bombs killed an elderly Protestant widow. And they also shot dead four Catholic civilians who were out walking or leaving pubs. Soon after these attacks, which were all civilians, by the way, Northern Ireland itself condemned the UVF. And today, still, the UVF is actually designated a terrorist organization, both by the Republic of Ireland as well as the United Kingdom. So not a lot of love for the UVF on either side. That's thing number one. Thing number two is a civil rights movement that happened in Derry around 1968. And in the mid-60s, civil rights um, were a thing all over the Western world. But in Northern Ireland, there was a campaign which was showing evidence of discrimination against Catholics on several fronts happening in Northern Ireland. Um, It was seen that Catholics were proven less likely to be given jobs, especially government jobs. Housing allocation prioritized Protestants over Catholics. And in Northern Ireland, only a householder could vote, whereas in the rest of the United Kingdom, all adults could vote. So they were fighting against that as well. Hmm. Electoral districts in Northern Ireland were gerrymandered, which is when you redraw the boundaries of the district to try and give yourself a competitive advantage in the vote. And the districts were gerrymandered to give nationalists less voting power than unionists even in districts where nationalists were the majority. They also noted that the police force was 90% Protestant and they criticized the police force for police brutality. Hmm. And then they noted that the Special Powers Act in Northern Ireland allowed 
searches, arrests, imprisonment, assembly bans, and print censorship. And they did all of this without a warrant or any kind of due process, but it was exclusively used against nationalists. So they had a lot of evidence of discrimination and it came to a head. In August, the movement held its first civil rights march in Northern Ireland. And in response, loyalists attacked nationalists in the marches and the police did nothing. And they, st they stood by while this happened. And this made the nationalists believe that the police were supporting the loyalists. Then the Northern Irish government banned the next civil rights march, which was supposed to be in October. But marchers defied the ban and they showed up anyways. And the RUC officers at this march surrounded the marchers and beat them indiscriminately and without provocation. This was all filmed on news internationally and televised all over the world. And the footage sparked days of riots by Catholics and nationalists across Ireland. The following year, there was a student civil rights group that formed in Belfast, and they conducted a march from Belfast in the east all the way to Derry on the western border of Northern Ireland. And when they got to Burncollet Bridge, the marchers were attacked by loyalists who had set up an ambush. And there were all kinds of loyalists there, including off-duty police officers, and everyone was armed with iron bars, bricks, and bottles. The marchers said that police did nothing to stop this, and they even helped the attackers. Uh, in response, residents of Derry se sealed off the neighborhood called Bogside, and they labeled it Free Derry, which they designated as an area where security officers were not allowed to go. In essence, a no police zone. <laughs> Civil rights, then, is our second um, of the four elements. The third is something called the Battle of the Bogside. This area that Derry sealed off, called Free Derry, took place in the neighborhood called Bogside. And in April 1969, RUC officers entered the house of a middle-aged civilian man and his two daughters. Uh, one of his daughters was in bed, recovering from a surgery, and the other was at home and she had a family friend over visiting. The officers barged into the home and beat all four people in the household. They knocked the girl who was in recovery totally unconscious and they beat the father so badly that he died of his injuries later. In August of the same year, there was a loyalist group that received permission to enter the bog side. And once they got there, it was immediately negative taunts and stones and petrol bombs were thrown by both nationalists and loyalists against each other. And the RUC tried to storm this safe area, the bog side. They tried to storm it with tear gas, armored vehicles, and water cannons. But the nationalists fought back in response and kept them at bay. Fighting was continually going on for three days, and this is now known as the Battle of the Bog Side. The battle also provoked violence in other areas. In Belfast, nationalists held protests, and some protesters attacked RUC bases. In response to these attacks, loyalists burned homes and buildings. They deployed armored cars that had heavy machine guns, and they opened fire in a nationalist neighborhood where they killed a nine-year-old boy named Patrick Rooney. All of that is the Battle of the Bog Side, or the third element of the form. Lastly, we come to 
Operation Banner, which is the deployment of British troops in August of 1969. In August, after the boy was killed, after the nine-year-old boy, the Tisha Jack Lynch made a television address. He condemned the RUC publicly, and he said that the Irish government could no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. He called for a United Nations peacekeeping force to be deployed, and he added that Irish reunification would be the only permanent solution to these um, troubles. Hmm. Some people, when he said Irish reunification, interpreted this as a threat that he would use the military to intervene uh, as though they were going to take back Northern Ireland or something like that. The day after Jack Lynch's uh, television address, the British deployed troops the next day in both Derry and in Belfast, but they did not enter the bog side, which was still a free dairy zone. And their purpose was to end the riots that were happening. And they also said that they would do nothing that would suggest partiality to one section of the community, uh, which is all good in theory, of course, but as you can imagine, that is not actually how it played out. Yeah, I wonder how, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to evaluate this stuff in hindsight, but I wonder how, how seriously anybody took that. Like, we're not here to be pro-Catholic or pro-Protestant. We're just here right. to keep the peace. Like, I wonder how, because obviously that feels a little disingenuous, but it's interesting. It's certainly, last time you talked about kind of British understatement, and this is another interesting moment of like, <laughs> Seriously, we're just here to like, you know, we're just here to stop these riots. And as we've said over and over, like, yeah, tell that to Henry II. Like, we're mad yeah. about <laughs> centuries of stuff here. Like, you can't just say, don't worry, it's going to be fine this time. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as Tyler's pointed out, there's kind of, not a consensus about when exactly the troubles themselves started. Um, but what we can say is, you know, by the, by the late sixties, this is a tumultuous time and um, the violence is beginning to spread um, in Northern Ireland and these and the kind of border areas. Um, I think it's an interesting question to ask what form this violence took, like exactly how did this whole um, conflict play out? And I'm going to attempt to do that in the next few minutes just kind of like bird's eye view of what did the troubles look like? Again, for people maybe like me who not that long ago, you might find this interesting, but you don't really truly understand it. Um, you might, it'd be easy to think about this as a war, which, um, you know, it is often described that way. But this is not a war with battlefields and generals and, you know, um, think less World War II and more like kind of, insurgent war um mm -hmm. kind of like like um some of the middle eastern conflicts like the taliban or al-qaeda um fighting uh, kind of a lopsided war of um a guerrilla war and i mean there's no i'm not making any equivalency arguments there or anything but it's way more like that than like world war ii where it's like you've got mm -hmm. roosevelt and you've got hitler and you've got you know um, and and this this battle began on this day and this many navies were involved. This was different. Um, it was a guerrilla conflict and a word and phrase you'll hear a lot if you do any reading or um, dive into this is tit for tat. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the violence that occurs is 
tit-for-tat revenge attacks. So a Catholic business in Northern Ireland is um, burned to the ground or, or vandalized in some way. And so, um, you know, Catholic paramilitary or um, Southern Irish paramilitary say, well, we can do you one better. And we're going to blow up a, a, you know, Protestant bank. And that is often kind of the form that it takes. And it, and it, it evolved as it went. Um, one thing I do um, want to point out, we, we kind of teased this last time, but there was a second um, unfortunate loss of life that was called Bloody Sunday. And this is the second Bloody Sunday that we've talked about on, on the podcast. This one took place in um, January 30th, 1972. Um, if you had to put your money on where this took place, um, smart money goes on Bogside in Derry, which is where it also <laughs> happened. Um, like I said, being being kind of the Catholic city in Northern Ireland or the mm. Catholic neighborhood is not um, not ideal. It's not surprising. Sparks fly there. Um, and on Bloody Sunday in 1972, British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march. Um, the 14 people of those 26, 14 people died. Um, and it was it was a kind of a attention grabbing and galvanizing moment in the troubles. Um, if you look at the Wikipedia page for um, the Bloody Sunday or the Bogside Massacre, you'll see some pretty startling um, images. There's one of people trying to remove wounded civilians from the kind of danger zone. And all of these people are carrying an, in, an injured person. And there's an Irish or a Catholic priest waving a handkerchief in front of a group carrying a body saying, please, please don't shoot at us. We're trying uh -huh. to get these people to a hospital. Um, very dramatic. And as you uh, mentioned at a, about a previous incident, Tyler, cameras were rolling and this was covered in the international news. Um, and three days later, the um, British embassy in Belfast was burned to the ground. Wow. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the tit for tat that we're talking about. Those were both um, extremely significant events. Um, the IRA, and again, I'm, when, when I'm talking about the IRA and when kind of history or, you know, popular imagination reflects on this, the IRA often kind of is just all of the Southern Irish and Catholic and Republican forces. Oftentimes people are just like, ah, it was the IRA. It can be more complicated than that, but they are kind of a useful figurehead. Um, but the, re the Republican plan of attack did kind of evolve. Um, initially, it focused on defense of Catholic areas. So you've got these armed Republican guys. They've got their, you know, a, a lot of times they're depicted um, in and they did wear like ski masks and they've got guns from all wherever they could get them all over the world they've got kind of a mishmash of weapons but they're there to defend catholic areas um it began but however it shifted to become an offensive campaign in 1970 wikipedia describes it as a shift from defensive terrorism to insurgency so like an active harassment um, campaign against the british um, and the northern irish um, it was aided. This is so interesting to me. Um, again, nothing can be super simple because it, 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 <laughs> if, if you're um, interested in like, yeah, the IRA, I think I think I like that this like these people rising up to defend whatever. Well, they're aided by external forces, including um, sympathizers in the Republic of Ireland, um, Irish people throughout the world, kind of the diaspora of Ireland, including major Irish communities in the United States. You, um, you know, in, in Boston and New York and other places with big Irish communities. Um, these tensions played out like you would see um, 
IRA symbols in Boston and you would see Ulster symbols in Boston, all sorts of interesting things. Um, but they did the IRA, you know, for instance, got funding and weapons from um, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. And they, you know, were wow. bedfellows with some kind of um, unsavory people, I guess you could say, that they kind of allied with. Um, so, again, nothing can be super simple. If, if you if you wanted to choose, cheer for the IRA, it's like, I don't love that they, you know, were friends with Gaddafi or the FARC in Colombia or any of these other people. Um, but the IRA used guerrilla tactics against the British Army and the RUC. They did it in the rural areas. They did it in urban areas. Um, and I kind of just want to give some examples, like what happened? Because, again, we're rushing through this entire thing. I just want to give a bird's eye view of how this all played out. But one example of something you might have, if you turned on the news in 1974 or 84 or 94 in um, Ireland, you might have heard about um, gun battles. So two that if somebody, if you want to go read a Wikipedia page, you could go look at, um, at the Battle of Spring Martin or the Battle of Lena Dune. These were two, um, um, not to be confused. Oh, well, yeah, the Battle of Lena Dune. Um, these were two like just gun battles, men with mm -hmm. guns in the streets shooting at each other. Um, it's kind of like an urban warfare skirmish situation. Tyler, you already talked about the no-go areas. That's a fascinating um, corner of this. Um, but a, again, a kind of another important component. There were areas that liter they literally built walls around their neighborhood and were like, last time the British were here or the, the RUC was here, a bunch of Catholic people got the crap kicked out of them. So we're literally just going to build a, some, like a, a concrete wall. And if you want to come in, you're going to have to like drive a tank through. <laughs> and so wow. um, interesting way of kind of doing that. Um, there was also an extensive bombing campaign. So like I said, that was one thing that kind of popped to my mind when I was like, I'm going to learn about the troubles. I know there are bombs involved. Mm -hmm. um, the IRA carried out a bombing campaign in not just Northern Ireland, but also elsewhere, including in within England against military targets, political tar targets, and even economic targets. Um, in 1972, and here's, again, just kind of a list of examples to sort of um, sort of ex set, a, set a palette of things that were going on. So in 1972, which is often listed as the most um, violent year of this entire conflict, um, the Provisional IRA killed approximately 100 members of British security forces, wounded 500 others, and carried out approximately 1,300 bombings. Um, there was an event, again, if you want to get confused, learn about the troubles. There's something called Bloody Friday, <laughs> which <laughs> occurred on the 21st of July in 1972, when the IRA set off 22 bombs um, throughout kind of the center of Belfast in like a 70 minute window. It was a very coordinated and terrifying kind of bombing campaign. Um, five civilians were killed, two British soldiers, an RUC reservist and an um, Ulster Defense Association member. Two years later, again, another snapshot. February 74, an IRA time bomb killed 12 people riding on like a public bus um, on a major freeway in Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. They were targeting off-duty British soldiers. So this violence spread into the UK, into like <laughs> the island of Britain, which must have been a very terrifying thing, um, which was exactly what they were going for, right? Like, we want you to take your hands off our island. 
and we'll even blow up a bus um, in Yorkshire, like not even in Ireland. Um, jumping forward even more, um, two Im- very important events took place in 82. In July of 82, the IRA bombed military ceremonies in London's Hyde Park um, and Regent's Park. They killed four soldiers, seven military bandsmen, and seven horses. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But a bombing in Hyde Park, that's, you know, that's Central Park for London, right? Like that yeah. is the main kind of public area. And that would have been um, kind of a, a, and it was sort of an earth shattering moment in the UK. Uh, in December 19, eight, uh, 1982, um, maybe even, uh, well, yeah, so somebody bombed a disco in Ballykenny in Londonderry, frequented by off-duty British soldiers. So again, this is an example of how this things get really muddy. They didn't bomb a military barracks or a or a or a you know a military base. They bombed a Protestant disco where they knew British soldiers liked to go, um, and eleven people were killed—a mixture of soldiers and civilians. Um, a bomb went off at Harrods in the UK in December of 1983, killing six people, a car bomb. Car bombs um, are kind of the prototypical or the stereotypical image of the um, IRA's mm. violence. They would um, <clears throat> use car bombs, which unfortunately are a, you know, that's more of a sledgehammer than a scalpel because there could be people walking by, the wrong person could get into a car. Mm-hmm. Um, intended for some military person and you know maybe their 16 year old son gets in behind the wheel instead Um, again which is why 52 percent of casualties here are civilians Um, however the big mama of all of this that i'm going to point out was the brighton hotel bombing which took place on the 12th of october 1984 when the ira set off a 100 pound time bomb in the grand brighton hotel um, in in brighton in the united kingdom where a bunch of politicians were gathering for the Conservative Party conference, including Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She was explicitly targeted. They tried to kill the Prime Minister um, of the United Kingdom. The bomb, which exploded in the early hours of the morning, um, killed five people, injured 34 others, and it killed um, one member of Parliament, Sir Anthony Barry. Um, So these were very troubled times, um, hence the name. And the violence um, kind of overwhelms the narrative. But there was also some nonviolent goings on here, particularly by the IRA and the Republicans, which are of note. The 1981 hunger strike um, is definitely worth reading about. It's the culmination of a five-year protest during the Troubles by Irish Republican prisoners. So men, uh, uh, people who were being arrested for you know um anti <laughs> anti-loyalist activities put in prison and they were protesting their treatment um there was something called um special category status for certain um prisoners um it basically was the treat treating somebody like a prisoner of war rather than treating them like a criminal so that was a question they had to answer was like okay we arrested this southern ireland guy who had guns in his car we know what he's up to or we at least suspect what he's up to, is he a criminal or is he a prisoner of war? Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily a straightforward answer. Um, And the British government was granting special category of um, category status, which meant they were being treated more like prisoner of prisoners of war to um, these Irish people who'd been arrested. 
But in 1976, the British government withdrew that for convicted paramilitary members. This resulted in several protests, the first of which was the blanket protest, in which Republican prisoners refused to wear prison clothing, seeing it as a symbol of their um, oppression and and just a way of kind of nonviolent um, disobedience. They would simply wear blankets. And there are um, kind of haunting images of these men with their hair and facial hair all grown out, um, covered, you know, um, wrapped only in blankets in Northern Irish prisons. In 1978, this um, dispute escalated into something called the Dirty Protest. I'm going to give anybody who's eating or squeamish the chance to skip ahead. <laughs> um, but the Dirty, the 1978 Dirty Protest was where prisoners refused to leave their cells to wash. They refused to wash their bodies or their cells. And they even covered the walls of their cells in their own excrement in order to make the conditions kind of untenable for the um, for the prison itself. I would rather take place in the blanket protest than the dirty protest. Ever. <laughs> um, in 1980, seven prisoners participated in the first hunger protest, um, which ended after 53 days. And hunger strikes were um, were kind of a common thing, or were a, they're um, kind of emblematic of this period of Irish history and the troubles. A second hunger strike took place in 1981 and was seen as a showdown between the prisoners and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Um, one hunger striker who um, uh, is particularly well-known named Bobby Sands, um, during the hunger strike, ran for parliament and was elected to parliament while he was in prison during the hunger strike. And this, of course, promoted vast media interest from around the world. Um, the strike was called off after 10 of these prisoners starved themselves to death, including Bobby Sands. Mm. Um, and Bobby Sands's funeral, um, for whatever reason, he kind of became the emergent. He was eloquent and handsome, and he wrote, he has some very pithy quotes, and he kind of became a figurehead here. Um, his funeral was attended by 100,000 people. Um, wow. And the strike, this hunger strike, the death of Sands and the other prisoners radicalized the politics of the time. Like it kind of took things to a, a whole nother level. And it was a driving force that enabled our old friend um, Sinn Féin, the political group that Tyler, you talked about last time, kind of the, the like the political party most closely aligned with the IRA. Um, Sinn Féin became a mainstream political party as a result of this hunger strike. Wow. Um, we're glossing over a lot here, <laughs> um, as usual. There's that great movie called Hunger um, with Michael Fassbender um, playing as um, Bobby Sands. And this is a, a really interesting period of the, the troubles. Um, but it is important to note that Sinn Féin become, gets back into kind of mainstream politics by this movement. People are like, maybe these people aren't so crazy. <laughs> you know, they were kind of viewed as, as extremists, but they were, um, their image kind of was recouped and they became sort of more celebrated and taken more seriously um, during this period of the troubles. They, um, Sinn Féin also practiced a, um, a policy of like hands-off ruling here. So Sinn Féin people would be elected to parliament and then they just wouldn't go. They refuse oh. to participate as a form of like, we've been elected, but you're not going to listen to us anyways. And mm. so our people just don't come. They don't vote because we know that you're going to, you know, you're going to um, do us dirty anyways. And um, this movement and some other things helped change that. And Sinn Féin started going and voting. And, you know, as a result, we're taken um, a little bit more seriously. 
Um, Bobby Sands is an interesting person. He was arrested a couple times um, for a gunfight, for possessing weapons, and for a he was kind of um, included as a suspect in a bombing. And he has a famous quote that um, on the Wikipedia page for the IRA, there's a an image of a a man in black holding a, a uh, an assault rifle and a quote by Bobby Sands on it. This would have been like a card or a pamphlet or some graffiti or something that would have been pretty, um, probably pretty popular and emblematic of the time. And one of his big quotes is there can never be peace in Ireland until the foreign oppressive British presence is removed, leaving all the Irish people as one unit to control their own affairs and determine their own destinies as a sovereign people, free in mind and body, separate and distinct physically, culturally, and economically. So now we come to, quote unquote, the end of the Troubles, almost. Wikipedia says, quote, after a period of background political maneuvering, as well as back-to-back -back bombings in 1992 and 1993, officially both loyalist and Republican paramilitary groups declare ceasefires in the year 1994. This was in the middle of ongoing violence, which has been the story for the whole time, right? There are countless episodes of snipers, shooters, bombers, civilians being shot on walks and pubs, etc. I mean, we've named, I think, like a dozen of them in this episode so far, and there's dozens more. There's so much to gloss over. Yeah. But in 1994, they officially declare a ceasefire. In addition to this, the U.S. actually appointed a U.S. special envoy for Northern Ireland, whose name was George Mitchell. And he was seen as more than just a token gesture. And it was clear that the United States did have an earnest representative with a keen interest in brokering peace. But even still, with the United States envoy for Northern Ireland, the ceasefire between the groups did not last. In 1996, the IRA detonated a truck bomb in London, uh, which officially revoked the ceasefire that they had established two years prior. The bomb exploded and several people were killed. And other attacks followed, most notably the 1996 Manchester bombing, which destroyed the center of the city of Manchester and was actually the largest attack in Britain since World War II. <clears throat> but in 1997, the IRA re reinstated their ceasefire. They decided again to go back to a ceasefire state, and they officially began negotiations for permanent peace. Now, as soon as I'm saying that, in the very next year, 1998, a bomb went off that killed 29 civilians, which was the most of any attack that had ever happened during the Troubles. <laughs> However, this was actually not detonated by the IRA, but rather a dissident group that had actually broken off from the IRA and they had named themselves the real IRA. So in a, in a I think, surprising twist of fate, what you have in the mid nineties is the paramilitary groups from Ireland and Northern Ireland calling ceasefires. And then this is such an unpopular decision that there are actually these splinter groups that break off from the norm and say, no, we want to keep fighting. Yeah. And so this is kind of the challenge that I think 
at the end of the troubles both nationalists and loyalists were facing. How could they broker peace on the main stage while also ending the violence that was coming up from these splinter groups on the side? No footnotes today. Thanks so much for listening and check us out on Instagram at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Have a good one.